Well, the subject before us in this conference is vast. Now, tomorrow, we're going to be looking at some biographies. We're going to be looking at John Owen and John Bunyan and Jonathan Edwards. Tonight, we're going to do an overview of English Puritanism. We're going to try to cover some 200 years of history in our time tonight. So I'm going to try to be as quick as I possibly can. We'll see how that works out. But I want you to know that in trying to cover such a vast amount of material, there's absolutely no way that we could cover all of it or even begin to look at the names of the many people that are important in in Puritanism. And so I brought this book with me. I want you to get a good look at that book right there. Because if you are interested in Puritanism, this is the book to get. Not only does it have a brief overview, such as what we're going to talk about tonight, but Joe Beakey has has put together basically a biography of every Puritan who ever lived right here. It also doubles as a great self-defense weapon, you know, if you really really need it. So I would recommend, I'm not going to put it there because I'll spill my water for sure, but I'm going to recommend that book to you. It's called Meet the Puritans, if you couldn't see it. And that's going to help us, help you if you want to to do more study into the subject of English Puritanism. Now, our goal is to see the time period in which these men and women lived. We want to see the struggles that they faced, and they faced a lot of struggles. If you ever begin to study church history, you're going to learn that a lot of church history is filled with suffering. It's filled with the blood of God's people. It's filled with persecution. And certainly we're going to see that as we look at the Puritans. These people, they weren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, and we'll talk about some of their faults. But they were godly men and women. There there were so many things about them that we would want to imitate in spite of the negative reputation that they have in the secular world. So we want to begin by asking this question, simple question, who were the Puritans? Now how many of you have heard the famous statement about who the Puritans were. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody just offhand? It is famously said of the Puritans that they were a people who were absolutely terrified that somebody somewhere was having a good time. That's the reputation of the Puritans. Uh, Well, it's a reputation that's not true. If you begin to study the Puritans, you're going to see that they weren't men who were opposed to fun and laughter. I know that Matt and Leah aren't here tonight, but I learned in my study of the Puritans that the Puritans used to wrestle. Did you know that? They wrestled, they threw javelin, they had a lot of good times, they hunted and fished, all those types of things. Uh, The reputation that we have concerning them was, was not true. But they were men who were zealous for holiness. The Puritans wanted everything. In the church, in their personal lives, they wanted everything to be in subjection to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That mattered to them above all things. And this because they had a passion for truth. The Puritans had a passion for the Bible. They loved the Bible. They emphasized the preaching of the Bible. And they wanted all men to know the Bible. And they wanted, most importantly, all men to know the Christ of the Bible. And so the Puritans then, just to tell you briefly who they were, the Puritans were those inside the Church of England following the Reformation who wanted to purify the church further. They wanted to purify the church in doctrine, purify the church in worship. They wanted to purify the church as far as ecclesiology or the way the church operated, the church government. They wanted to continue reforming the church after a more biblical pattern of worship and government and ecclesiology. And so this is Puritanism. Now, Puritanism doesn't have an exact beginning. If anybody ever asks you when did Puritanism begin, you could give a general idea as we will tonight, but it doesn't have an exact date. Uh, It really begins to rise under Queen Elizabeth in the 16th century. It also doesn't have an exact end. We're going to finish our study with Jonathan Edwards because he is widely regarded as the last Puritan. But some people refer to Martin Lloyd-Jones, who lived in the 20th century, as the last Puritan. I mean, there's a lot of talks today about when Puritanism ended. And so the date of Puritanism isn't easy, but it was in the 1560s, 
that the term Puritan first was used, and it was used as an insult. It was a derogatory term, even as it's used today to describe people who are seen as being puritanical. Somebody ever says to you that you're being puritanical, I promise they don't mean that as a compliment. Even if you leave here thinking, man, I hope somebody describes me as puritanical. They don't mean it that way. In fact, if you look at the dictionary on your computer or phone, if you look at the dictionary of the word puritanical, at least on my computer, this is what it said. Practicing or affecting strict religious or moral behavior, and this is the example sentence, his puritanical parents saw any kind of pleasure as the road to damnation. Puritanical. Well, that's how it was used to describe them. Well, to understand how the puritanical movement began, we actually have to go back to who some people regard as the first Puritan. And I'm sure that you all remember so well our study from last year. I probably don't even have to remind you of our study. You remember it so well. But really to... Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah. But really to to begin looking at Puritanism, we really need to go back to our last study from the Reformation last year, and we really need to look at a man named William Tyndale. Now you might remember uh, that for centuries the church in Europe was led by the Pope. He was the supreme head of the church. Even at times, he exercised power over kings. That's how powerful that the Pope was. But God raised up these godly men in the Reformation and placed within them a passion for God's Word. Men like John Wycliffe and John Huss and Martin Luther and William Tyndale and John Knox and Ulrich Zwingli. And we could go on and on and on with John Calvin and so on. And several men that God raised up with a passion for His truth. And through these men, the Holy Spirit changed the world. They turned the world upside down through the preaching and the distribution, really, of God's Word. Now, you remember that in church services, when you would attend Mass, during the time before the Reformation, the Mass was performed in Latin. There were no services in England, or in English, excuse me. A lot of times when you would attend the church, Even the priest who was administering the service didn't even know what he was saying. He had just rehearsed the words, but really didn't have any meaning. They weren't teaching. There were even some priests who never even attended their churches. They simply made money from being being called the bishop of the local area. It was a, a very bad time. The Bible was covered with all sorts of legalism and false gospel, and as well as not being in the language of the people, but the reformers put the Bible in the hands of the people. Martin Lloyd Jones, or Martin Lloyd Jones, Martin Luther had a German translation. And of course, William Tyndale, God's outlaw, translated the first Bible into English from the original language. Now, John Wycliffe had translated a Bible into English, but it came from Jerome's Vulgate Bible, the Latin. But William Tyndale, took the Greek and was also working on the Old Testament translation before he died out of the Hebrew, and it became the first English Bible translated from the original languages. Now, you remember how hated he was for this. They set him up. They trapped him. Then they arrested him. Then they set him in prison. Then they tied him to a stake. Then they burned him at the stake, and that wasn't enough. They then put gunpowder and dynamite, and they blew him up. That's how much they hated William Tyndale. Why? Because he produced an English Bible. Now you might remember that as William Tyndale was preparing to be burned at the stake, his last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And God would amazingly answer that prayer. And following William Tyndale and the spread of the English Bible, the Reformation would come to England. And so, in order to understand Puritanism and how it came out of the Reformation in England, we had to start with William Tyndale, and now we have to begin to look at the politics that were involved. And this is where our study is really going to be tonight. So we have to go to King Henry VIII. Now, King Henry VIII in England was an opponent of William Tyndale. He was one who was seeking his life. This is the one for whom William Tyndale prayed. 
that God would open his eyes. And God opened that prayer in a most interesting way. You see, Henry VIII was married to a woman named Catherine of Aragon. But Catherine was only giving him daughters. Well, Henry needed a son so that his dynasty would continue. And he blamed Catherine for not being able to give him a son. And so he fixed his eyes on another lady. Her name was Anne Boleyn. And he wanted permission to marry Anne Boleyn. He wanted permission to divorce his wife and marry Anne Boleyn that he might be able to have a son that would continue his dynasty. And so Henry VIII went to the Pope and asked for permission to divorce Catherine and marry Anne Boleyn. And the Pope would not give him permission to do it. Well, Henry VIII began to get desperate because he had had an affair with Anne Boleyn and she was six months pregnant. Now, if she was going to have a son, in order for that son to be a legitimate heir to his throne, they had to be married. And so here is Henry, three months away from having a child. He doesn't know what he's going to do. And the Pope will not approve his divorce and his marriage to Anne Boleyn. And so this is what Henry decided to do. He said, who needs a Pope? I'm the king. And so Henry VIII breaks away from the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. And a year later, it is Henry VIII that is said to be the head of the church in England. Now, it just so happened. You'll learn if you get to know me that that's a phrase that I love. Whenever I say it just so happened, I never mean it just so happened. But it just so happened that there was a man named Thomas Cranmer who was a scholar at Cambridge who had been influenced by Martin Luther. And Thomas Cranmer was brilliant. And Henry began to notice Cranmer. And so he called and had Thomas Cranmer come and help him out. And eventually Cranmer became the Archbishop of Canterbury. And Thomas Cranmer was a Protestant who saw this was God's providence orchestrating all of these things. And so Thomas Cranmer came to help uh, Henry VIII separate from the Roman Catholic Church and establish what would become the Anglican Church there in England. Now, he would be patient and he would move too fast, but this is the beginning of the breaking away of the English Church from Rome. Now, I want you to think about this for just a minute. Henry VIII once wrote a book against Martin Luther. He was actually said by the Pope to be the defender of the faith, Henry VIII. And yet God uses him to bring the Reformation to England following William Tyndale. Folks, I just have to stop right there and point out to you the sovereignty of God in all of this. We live in a wicked day, don't we? We don't know what's going on. There's wars happening in Israel, our government, and all these things that are happening. and We don't know who's going to be president in 2024. And we have a tendency today to be fatalists. Don't ever become a fatalist. And you think to yourself sometimes, it's over for us, it's over for this world, it's over for this country. Uh, We're just running away from God as fast as we can. But I want you to understand how bleak things were in England before this happened. And yet God used an adulterous king to bring reformation to England. Think about that. God remains sovereign. And we need to pray and seek Him that He would do a work in our day because He can. Will He? Maybe not. But can He? Absolutely. And as we study Jonathan Edwards in the Great Awakening, maybe we'll pray that God would send another one. Well, Henry, of course, would marry Anne Boleyn. He would eventually have her executed, by the way. He would end up marrying um, six times. He would have multiple children. Of course, his wife, Catherine, gave birth to Mary I. Anne Boleyn would give birth to Elizabeth. Henry, after having Anne executed, would marry Jane Seymour. She would give birth to a son named Edward. And when Henry died, the throne would go to Edward when he was only nine years old. Now, Cranmer had been mentoring young Edward, preparing for him to take the throne. And so... When Henry dies 
and Edward becomes King, Thomas Cranmer sees this is my chance to really reform the church in England and to continue breaking away from Roman Catholicism. And Edward, to his credit, seems to have been a genuine Christian, a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, all of these changes begin being made there in England. He separated from Rome. He eliminated the celibacy of the clergy. The mass is gone. Protestantism is officially established in England. Now, this is the most important thing about this time. Thomas Cramer would publish what would be known as the Book of Common Prayer. Now, if you don't understand the Book of Common Prayer, you're not going to understand Puritanism. The Book of Common Prayers actually was a fine book. It was meant to help the church reform its worship. It had the liturgy and it had uh, certain prayers and it had certain duties and, and, and things that would happen on certain days. And, and, and this was the way that worship would be constructed there in England. It was very Protestant. Cramer would also write 42 articles, which would later become the 39 articles, which is still the doctrinal statement for the Anglican church today. Now, the reformers who were in England, well, they were excited about Edward, but unfortunately Edward's reign, when he began at only nine years old, would be short-lived because at the age of 15 he would die. And Cranmer and others were suddenly very afraid because next in line for the throne was Henry's daughter to Catherine, Mary, who was decidedly Roman Catholic. And so Cranmer and others, they cooked up a scheme to make Edward's cousin, Lady Jane Grey, to become Queen of England. But it wouldn't work. After nine days, after Edward's death, Mary I, the daughter of Catherine, she's able to have Lady Jane Grey deposed and Mary Tudor becomes queen in 1553. Now, this is a lady who is a strict Roman Catholic, as I said. She absolutely hates Protestantism. Some of this is purposeful because of the way that Henry had treated her mother, Catherine. She feels very strongly about that. And she gets to work immediately trying to stamp out Protestantism from England. Jane and her husband, as well as Thomas Cranmer, was executed for treason. Now, we have to stop here and talk about the execution of Thomas Cramer because it's one of the most fascinating stories from this time period. Uh, Thomas Cramer, as Bloody Mary, as she is going to become known, spoiler alert there, as she takes the throne, Thomas Cramer is witnessing all of these executions that she's carrying out. And Thomas Cramer becomes very afraid. And Thomas Cramer recants his Protestant faith. He recants the true gospel of Christ and he signs a recantation in writing. Now, it was supposed to be the case that if you recanted, that you would be spared from execution. But not with Mary. Mary was going to make an example of Thomas Cranmer. And so even though he recanted, she was going to burn him at the stake anyway. But first, she wanted Thomas Cranmer to give a public recantation. She wanted him to fully address an audience. And this man who had been so pivotal in Protestantism coming to England, she wanted him to speak at University Church and publicly recant his Protestant faith. And so Thomas Cranmer did it. And he ascended the pulpit and he had a written manuscript for what he was going to say that of course had been approved. But as he got up in the pulpit and began to speak, he threw the manuscript away. And Thomas Cranmer recanted his recantation. And Thomas Cranmer began to preach the gospel of salvation by faith alone and Christ alone. And they ran and they pulled him out of the pulpit and took him immediately to the stake. But as they were lighting the fires to burn him at the stake, Thomas Cranmer took out his right hand and put it over the fire first. And he said, This wicked hand that signed my recantation will be the first to burn. Thomas Cranmer held his hand in that fire and then ultimately he died at the stake there. Well, during Mary's five years as queen, you want to know why she's called Bloody Mary? 
She had nearly 300 Protestants killed. Many more were imprisoned and they died due to other reasons such as starvation. Now when we say that she had many Protestant killed, those 300, we're talking about ministers. She didn't stop there. She killed women. She killed children. She was a wicked, monstrous woman. Now many of the Protestant ministers would flee from the wrath of Mary. They would become known as the Marian exiles. And what she intended for evil, God meant it for good. Because these men who were ministers, Protestant Reformed ministers who fled Mary, where did they go? They went to Geneva and sat under John Calvin. And there they were trained under the greatest Reformed teacher in the world. And of course, one of the greatest who had ever lived. And so when they come back to England, these are men more zealous than ever before, having been trained under that most perfect school of Christ, as John Knox would call it, there in Geneva. Well, in God's providence, mercifully, on November 17, 1558, at only the age of 42, Bloody Mary would die. How terrible would it have been if she'd have lived another 40 years? But she died at the age of 42 in God's providence. And Elizabeth, Anne Boleyn's daughter and Mary's half-sister, would become queen. And now Puritanism is going to rise because these exiles begin to come back. Now... Mary had done a lot to try and undo the work of Edward and Cranmer in turning England into Protestantism. But when Elizabeth took the throne, England would be Protestant yet again. Here come these Marian exiles back. They are invigorated. They are ready to continue the Reformation. They are excited about Elizabeth. They've got high hopes for what she's going to accomplish and how she's going to lead England into a more Reformed church. And they really get excited because she begins appointing some of these exiles into positions of prominence. Some of them are becoming bishops. And they see this opportunity to continue to reform the church in England and to move away not only from Rome, but from Anglicanism. Some of the practices of Anglicanism, which they saw as being still too Roman Catholic-like. But they would be disappointed in Elizabeth. She she wouldn't be the type of radical reformer that they hoped. She actually would try to compromise. She would try to play both sides. She was really more concerned about peace than she was about reformation. In 1558, she was declared by Parliament as the supreme governor of the church in England, and she establishes what's known as the Elizabethan Settlement or the Elizabethan Compromise, which drew together a compromise of Reformed doctrine, a liturgical form of worship, and an Episcopal or a bishop-led church government. Now, in Geneva, they have a Presbyterian-style government. You say, well, what's a Presbyterian-style government? That's the government that this church has. It's elder rule. Now, some of the Puritans would be congregationally led, but in Geneva, it's Presbyterian-style government, which is what this church is and, and the church that I pastor back home. That's what we are. But the Anglican church was bishop-led. And these reformers who are becoming Puritans now, wanting to purify the church, they want to move away from this what's called an Episcopal-style government towards a Presbyterian-style government. But Elizabeth is trying to compromise, hoping that this is going to eliminate some of these threats. Now, in 1559, she issues what's called the Act of Uniformity, Everyone in England is required to go to church and they're required to use an updated Book of Common Prayer, Elizabeth's Book of Common Prayer, which she updates from Cranmer in 1552. So they're required to use that Book of Common Prayer and they're also required to stand by the 39 articles as the statement of faith. Now let me ask you this. Why do you think the Reformers, now becoming Puritans, don't want to use the Book of Common Prayer? Well, because they want to have one rule for worship. What rule is that? Scripture. Sola Scriptura. We don't need a prayer book. We don't need someone to tell us about liturgy. We don't need certain pre-recorded, pre-written prayers. We want to worship how the Scripture says, as led by the Holy Spirit. And so they don't want the prayer book. And they certainly don't want a bishop. They don't want anything to do 
with those things. And so they refuse to use the prayer book. They refuse to worship in the way that the queen prescribed. And there's more problems as well. You see, they saw way too many similarities between Anglicanism and Roman Catholics. You see, the bishops in Anglicanism were still called priests. Why is that a problem? Because a priest implies something. What does it imply? Sacrifice. Well, in Roman Catholicism, at the Mass, whenever the priest takes the bread and holds it up and blesses it, what do they believe? They call it transubstantiation. They believe that this bread and this wine, after it is taken in, literally become the body and blood of Christ. Roman Catholic Mass is another propitiation. They believe it's another sacrifice of Christ, which we absolutely repudiate, don't we? Because the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 10 that Jesus has been offered once for all, once for all time. And so they didn't like the idea that bishops were called priests because we're not offering a sacrifice. There's been one sacrifice, Jesus at Calvary, once for all. Of course, the priests also wore vestments. They didn't like that. They knelt during communion, which was not acceptable. Well, they saw Calvin's church in Geneva, and they saw that as way better, much simpler, and that's what they want. And so Elizabeth's compromise was insufficient in their view. And so they wanted to purify the church from these things, hence the name Puritan. Now they're going to begin being called Puritans because they're wanting to purify the church away from these things that Elizabeth is installing here as part of this compromise. Now, on top of this, they're more concerned than just the liturgy of the church as well. They are concerned that so many people in England still don't understand justification by faith alone. There's a formalism to religion, a going through the motions, the traditions, the practices, but they don't understand the basics of the gospel and they wanted the freedom to preach what Scripture said and to preach the gospel. But Elizabeth would not budge. And anyone who spoke out against or would not use the prayer book was subject to be fined. And so now Puritanism is born. Well, there was a Puritan named Thomas Cartwright. If you want to know more about Thomas Cartwright, I would refer you to the book, Meet the Puritans. He'll tell you all about Thomas Cartwright. But Thomas Cartwright was a professor at Cambridge, and he was really frustrated with all of this. And so in 1570, he is lecturing, he is pushing for a Presbyterian-style government. He wants to rid the church of bishops, which he saw as unbiblical, and establish a rule uh, of a local congregation under a plurality of elders. Well, Elizabeth would have him removed from Cambridge because of this, but he was beginning to shape uh, the church to imitate Geneva. Now, at the universities, they also held these events known as prophesyings, which is where these people would come and they would just preach. And people would travel from miles around just to listen to these events where these Puritans would preach. Imagine that. We travel miles to see things, but how many of us travel for miles to go and hear the preaching of God's Word? Of course, we don't really have to anymore, do we? All we have to do is turn on a screen. And you can watch John MacArthur, the, as Jonathan referred to in the Baptist Pope out there in California, anytime you want. <clears throat> but they didn't have that. So they would travel for miles just to sit under preaching. These were times, and this is all new, where the Bible is being discussed freely and openly, and they are taking advantage of it. And these prophesyings began to advocate again for Presbyterian-style government, to get rid of bishops, to have elders, all of this. And so you have this young, restless, reformed movement in England who really wants to continue pushing for reform. And then you have this older generation who is just becoming more and more intolerant of the young, restless, and reformed. That, by the way, is not my promotion of the modern-day young, restless reform movement. Just let me say that very quickly. Well, Elizabeth saw these prophesyings as extremely dangerous, and she decided to put an end to it. She wanted to control the Puritans. She issued a parliamentary act against the Puritans of 1593. Hundreds of 
Puritans are suspended from their posts, but the Puritans, they're holding out hope again. We just got to make it through Elizabeth. And then James is going to become king, and James is a Protestant. Is that what's going to happen? Well, sure enough, Elizabeth dies in March of 1603. King James VI, who is already the king of Scotland, he ascends the throne. He becomes King James I of England. Now he is king over a united kingdom. And the Puritans are excited. You see, James has been over there under my man John Knox in Scotland. Now, John Knox is the reformer. This is a man bold as anything. If you were here last year and you saw Nick's incredible presentation, I mean, he basically just personified John Knox in the flesh last year, if you were there to see that. John Knox is boldly preaching in Scotland, and King James has been there, and he he has been sitting under John Knox, and they are excited that he is going to come and finally rid England of Anglicanism and of Roman Catholicism, and they're going to have the freedom to worship how the Scripture says. Well, not so fast, my friends. When King James becomes king, they have this great hope. They put together this conference with King James in London at the Hampton Court. They bring to him a petition signed by a thousand Puritan ministers. And this petition was to appeal to him to continue the reforms in the church, get rid of the bishops, investments, and all those things. James thought about their requests. Now, who is it that's responsible for appointing bishops in England? Was the king. They're wanting to get rid of bishops. Who appoints elders? The local congregations. So as King James is sitting back thinking to himself, should I really do what they want and get rid of bishops in the church? He considers it and he thinks to himself, no bishops, no king. To remove the bishops is to remove the king's authority over the church. And so King James says... No, not going to do that. Now, I'm saying King James. You all know who this is, right? He is the, the man whose name is on the cover of the most popular selling Bible of all time. Now, do you know why King James had the King James Bible translated in the first place? You see, the Bible that the Puritans were using was known as the Geneva Bible. Now, the Geneva Bible was an English Bible, but in the bottom of that Bible were something revolutionary. How many of you have a study Bible? Right? At the bottom of the Geneva Bible were study notes, just like you might find in a modern-day study Bible. And in those study notes... The men who had compiled the Geneva Bible had written that Christ, not the king, is the supreme head of the church. King James said, I can't have that. I'm the head of the church. And so King James ordered to have a new translation, the King James Bible, so that he could stamp out the Geneva Bible, which was saying that Christ and not the king, is the head of the church. So James refuses the request. He doesn't read the church's ceremonies, the prayer book, the bishops. He demanded that all of the clergy conform to the liturgy and government of the church of England. And he actually said, I shall make them conform themselves or I shall harry them out of the land. Conform or else. As a result, from 1604 to 1609, nearly 90 ministers were suspended from office Many of these men would migrate elsewhere, including a man named William Bradford, who would be a future governor of Plymouth Colony. By 1620, some Puritans were holding illegal private meetings as they sought to obey God and not man. They became known as separatists because they were determined to separate from the Church of England. One of these groups was in the village of Scrooby. And they became known as the Scrooby con- Congregation, and they wanted to flee, to England, flee, flee from England, so they went actually to the Netherlands. You know what they discovered in the Netherlands? That the youth in the Netherlands, Netherlands were having a bad influence on their children. So they felt like they had to get out of the Netherlands in order to properly train their children up in godliness, but they had a problem. 
They couldn't go back to England because they wouldn't conform to the Church of England. So what did they do? They came back to England only temporarily after 10 years. Then they boarded a ship you may have heard of called the Mayflower. And this scrooby congregation came to America, came to the New World, seeking free, not freedom of religion, folks. They came seeking the freedom to worship Christ. They came seeking the freedom to preach the Bible, to study the Bible, and to order their service and their worship around what the Bible says, and in order to bring their children up in this country in the fear and the discipline of the Lord. The Puritans, led by a man named John Robinson, had arrived in America. Now, under King James, some things would calm down a bit during, due to the Puritan influence in par- Parliament, but things are about to get really bad for the Puritans because after James I died, Charles I takes the throne in England. Now, I probably should have put together some slides for you to help keep track of this. That probably would have been a good idea in hindsight. So if you need some notes on some of this, ask me and I will give them to you. Now, I did send Rusty a timeline of these events that I'm describing for you. I don't know if he's giving those to you yet. He says he has not. He probably forgot all about it, knowing him. But he has actually a timeline of everything that I'm telling you and the, and the significant dates and the significant kings and queens. So if you want that, Rusty has that. He will print that for you at your request, and he will give that to you, I'm sure. Charles I becomes king in 1625, and Charles married a devout Roman Catholic. So, of course, the Puritans are worried that things are going back to Rome. These fears become worse in 1628 because Charles appoints an advisor, a man named William Laud. William Laud becomes the Bishop of London. Eventually, he becomes the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, Laud opposes the Pope, but he is a staunch Arminian. Now, one of the things that the Puritans were the most concerned about was Arminianism. So different in our day, where it seems like the vast majority of the church, they are Arminian. But the Puritans were very concerned about Arminianism. We'll see that especially when we get to our study of Jonathan Edwards and we see what happens with Harvard. And we see what happens with Yale. We'll get there tomorrow, Lord willing. Well, William Laud along with Charles I, began pushing again an Episcopal style of church in England. They elevate the communion table. They call it an altar. They insist that the church conform to the Book of Common Prayer. This leads to one of my famous or my, my favorite stories out of Scotland. Now, they're trying to force these things on the Scots as well as in England, and the Scots aren't going to take this. But King Charles sends a bishop out to the church in Scotland, to John Knox's church of all places. I mean, that's pretty brazen. And so here comes this bishop to the church, and he ascends to the pulpit, and he opens up the book of common prayer, and he begins to start doing the service from the book of common prayer, and there is a Sweet old lady sitting here in the congregation. And she's not going to have it. No, uh, not in Scotland. This old lady stands up and she says, quote, You'll not lay that mass book on my old ear. And then she picks up the stool she was sitting on and throws it at the bishop. And a riot breaks out in the church there in Scotland. Really sorry about that. (laughs) You're not going to lay that mass book on my old ear. You know, we talked about this last time. A lot of times the women of the Reformation and of these great movements in history, they don't get enough credit. But you know what? The women were very significant in the time of the Reformation. And this sweet old lady from Scotland certainly had a part in that. Well... Laud began to persecute the Puritans because of their lack of conformity to the Church of England. He prohibited the preaching of predestination, and he opposed the Christian Sabbath. Now, I don't 
particularly you know what Rusty's position is on Sabbath. We'll have to talk about that later. Maybe I should have asked you before I got up here. But the Puritans were very Sabbatarian. They held strongly to the Christian Sabbath. Now, one of the things that James I had done is he had written a book called The Book of Sports. Now, The Book of Sports was a book written to encourage people to participate in sports on the Lord's Day, Sunday, the Christian Sabbath. Well, James got a lot of backlash on that, so he actually rescinded the book of sports, but Charles I would bring it back up and he would force the ministers to read from the book of sports from their pulpits on Sunday morning worship. That was a smack in the face to the Puritans who were strongly Sabbatarian. We'll come back to that here in just a little bit. And of course, they had no problem with sports. I already told you that earlier, but not on the Sabbath day. And so Puritans began again began to flee. In 1630, another large Puritan migration to America took place led by John Winthrop. Around 13,000 sailed to New England. Lodd's attacks on the church is key to the English Civil War. In 1641, Parliament, which is made up of many Puritans, well, they would call for Laud's imprisonment. Laud would be arrested. He would eventually be beheaded. And Charles would try to punish them for this act, and civil war would break out. And in 1642, Charles is forced to flee to London. During this time, the Puritans take advantage of this, and they call an assembly of more than a hundred Puritan leaders who met at Westminster Abbey. And there at Westminster Abbey, from 1643 to 1649, these men put together the Westminster Confession of Faith and also the shorter and the larger catechism. Now, the Westminster Confession of Faith is perhaps the greatest confession of faith ever ever written. Of course, it's still a confession of the Presbyterian Church today. Now the war between the royal army, the parliamentary army, it rages on, but the parliamentary army found a military genius to lead them. His name was Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell and his new model army would defeat the army of the king in 1648, and in 1649, King Charles is executed for treason. Tomorrow we will see that the day after King Charles is executed for treason, John Owen will preach to Parliament. Well, after he is executed, the monarchy is abolished and England becomes a commonwealth led by parliament. You would think here are the Puritans, this great position of power. Now they can finally reform the church exactly how they want, but there's so much infighting going on that they really didn't accomplish much during this time. In fact, Oliver Cromwell gets so frustrated with it, he basically takes over himself. In 1653, he dissolves Parliament and he becomes Lord Protector, which is basically a military dictator until he dies in 1658. Now, under Cromwell, religious freedom is protected. People are allowed to worship according to the liberty of conscience. And for the first time, Puritans have no fear about how they worship in England. But when Cromwell dies things go back the other direction again. Now, Cromwell had a son. His name was Richard. And they tried to get Richard to follow in the footsteps of his father. And he failed miserably. He was not the leader that his father uh, father was. And this actually led Parliament to reach out yet again for the monarchy. And amazingly, they call Charles II... And Charles II becomes the king of England. The first thing that he does is he exhumes Oliver Cromwell's body. He cuts his head off. He throws Cromwell's body into a pit with a lion. And then he takes his head and he puts it on a stake and mounts it on top of Westminster Hall out of anger for what Oliver Cromwell had done to his father. So what do you think Charles II is going to do to the Puritans? He begins strongly attacking and persecuting the Puritans. Now the things that we are about to read, and I'm about to tell you about right here, 
this is the time during which John Owen and John Bunyan lived that we're going to be talking about tomorrow. These things are what they are going to experience and why especially John Bunyan suffered so greatly during his life. Charles would begin issuing a series of anti-Puritan laws, the first of which is called the Sedition Act. It's passed in 1661, and it defines new kinds of treason against the king. It becomes treason to call the king a papist or a heretic or to incite any opposition against the king whatsoever. It's treason. The second act is called the Corporation Act. It restricts all who would hold public office. They must be members of the Church of England, nonconformists, those who would not conform to the Church of England. Nonconformists are forbidden from holding any political or military office. The Puritans are basically removed from any position of power. We will see how that affects John Owen tomorrow. So no one can serve any political office who does not receive communion at least once a year inside the church of England. They are also forbidden from attending school at Oxford or at Cambridge. In 1662, he issues what's called a new act of uniformity. And under this act, every pastor in England must read from pre-written prayers and must administer the Lord's Supper as the Book of Common Prayer prescribes. Puritans were commanded to either conform to this act completely or be forced to leave their posts. Listen to this. More than 2,000 ministers refused, and they either resigned or they were expelled from the Church of England in one day. On August the 4th, 1662, 2,000 Puritan ministers lost their pulpit. 20% of the ministers in England. This became known as the Great Ejection. Now tomorrow I'm going to tell you about some Puritan paperbacks because you can get a lot of John Owen and John Bunyan's writings today in these Puritan paperbacks. One of those is called Sermons of the Great Ejection and you can read the last sermons that these men preached on the day that they were thrown out of their pulpits due to this new act of uniformity. He's not done. In 1664, the Conventicle Act banned any unlicensed religious assembly. No religious gathering of more than five people were allowed. Nonconformists couldn't preach anywhere, not even in the fields. In 1665, he passed what was known as the Five Mile Act. This meant that any Puritan minister could not come within five miles of the church that he once pastored. A sixth act, the second conventicle act, this act opposed, uh, put fines upon anyone who would attend a religious meeting that does not have license or approval. Now, it might surprise you to know that this did not go over well in Scotland. And so they issue a declaration in 1680, in which is basically a declaration of war against Charles II. The declaration states that they are in opposition to tyrannical magistrates over Protestants and Presbyterians, and these magistrates are open enemies of God. They will not acknowledge them as lawful magistrates over them. The response by Charles II is a period of time in Scotland that was known as the killing time. And for eight years, from 1680 to 1688, Charles II has thousands of Reformed Puritans in Scotland slaughtered. Charles II would die in 1685. His brother James II is crowned the King of England. Persecution continues as he is pro-Catholic. Many famous Puritans, such as Owen, Bunyan, others, are imprisoned, livelihoods taken away. Some men even die under these 25 years. This all ends... In 1688, when William and Mary become king and queen of England, but by then the Puritan movement was dying out. It's really kind of interesting that when persecution ends, the movement also begins to die. It's really kind of fascinating to know that during times of great suffering, that's when the church really explodes. When they finally get the peace they'd been looking for, the Puritan movement begins to die out after 1688. This was a great time of turmoil and suffering, as you can tell by what we have said tonight. 
but it was also a time when some of the greatest works in the history of the church were produced by some of the godliest men in the history of the church. Let's finish tonight by telling you the legacy of the Puritans. I know that was a lot for us to try, especially when Rusty hadn't done his part like I told him to and give you the printed out copy of all the dates. That was a lot for us to take in and all these kings and queens and all these dates and all these acts and all these things that happened. So what, is, what was the legacy of these men? How should we think about them? Well, when we think about the Puritans, let's first of all think like this. Let's think about their commitment to the Bible. The reason why they would not conform is because they were sola scriptura men. The Bible alone is to God faith and practice. Riken says of Puritanism that it was a movement in which the Bible was central to everything. He says, quote, There is a sense in which the foremost issue of the Puritan movement was the question of authority. The Puritans resolved the question of authority by making the Bible the final authority for belief and practice. John Owen said, quote, Protestants suppose the Scripture to be given forth by God to be a perfect and complete rule of faith. Commitment to the Bible. Since that's true, they were committed to preaching. These men preached. In fact, they preached extremely long sermons. Jonathan Edwards' own wife told him he preached too long. But they preached. They believed in the power of God's Word and they wanted to preach it. They were expositors. The ministers themselves, as well as their parishioners, they sought careful exposition of God's Word both in their preaching and in their writing. It was said of Jonathan Edwards, as we'll see tomorrow, that he would spend 13 hours a day in his study. It wasn't uncommon, as I said, for their sermons to be so long that they would last two hours or more. Sometimes they would preach for two hours, then they'd spend two hours in prayer, then they'd come back and preach for two more hours. They preached. They preached a lot. Third, church worship. The Puritans desperately wanted to conduct worship as described in the Bible. Christ, the head of the church, and thus His Word determines how we worship. Worship is to be regulated by Scripture, not by the monarchy, not by the queen, not by the king, but by Scripture. That's really what Puritanism was about. They wanted a simple worship without the ceremonies, without all the liturgies. They wanted singing, reading of Scripture, and preaching. And of course, the taking of communion. They wanted preaching to be Christ-centered, biblically ordered, filled with prayer, and filled with God's Word. Now, of course, when we think about the Puritans, we think about their piety, their godliness. Uh, These were men and women who lived pursuing holiness. There was a great concern in this movement about true faith and true piety. Richard Baxter would write against formalism, which I mentioned earlier. And he said, quote, Can we think that the Reformation is wrought when we cast out a few ceremonies and change some vestures and gestures and forms? No, sirs. It is the converting and saving of souls that is our business. That is the chiefest part of Reformation. The Puritans believed in a rigorous pursuit of holiness with no spiritual complacency. Baxter again wrote, As mere idleness and forgetting God will keep a soul as certainly from heaven as a profane, licentious, fleshly life, so also will the usual company of such idle, forgetful, negligent persons as surely keep our hearts from heaven as the company of men more dissolute and profane. Idleness not to be seen in the Puritan church. They sought holiness and submission to Christ in all areas of life. This, by the way, in their work. The Puritans were known as the hardest working people. You know why? Because they saw even their daily lives at work as working for Christ. They worked for God in all that they did. Thomas Goodwin wrote, The glory of the great God was set up in my heart as the square and rule of each and every practice. Not just religious practice, 
but in every practice. John Cotton wrote, Not only my spiritual life, but even my civil life in this world, all the life I live is by faith in the Son of God. He exempts no life from the agency of His faith. In other words, there's no distinction between religious life and secular life. It's all one life lived in faithfulness to Christ. Godliness is the goal. This is true of their family life. They were devoted to family worship. They viewed the family as the little church with morning and evening devotions. They would sing hymns and pray, and the Father would bring a word from the Bible. All of life was lived in pursuit of the glory of God. These men also had a heart for the gospel. They wanted to see people saved and converted. Burroughs would speak of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And the Puritans would emphasize that, but they would also emphasize the great grace and mercy of God. Nichols writes, Read anywhere in the Puritan writings and you will bump into the ugliness of sin. Keep reading and you will see the beauty of grace and the power of God and His mercy to wipe sinful hearts clean through the merits of Christ. They knew sin to be powerful, but they knew the gospel to be more so. Riken writes, in both its private and public manifestations, the Puritan movement was populated by God-obsessed people. John Bunyan's haunting question, how can I be saved, was ultimately the important question for every Puritan. Now we're going to see this in John Owen, who is expelled from Oxford, but would continue to preach to private, secret congregations. We'll see it in John Bunyan, who is arrested and promised that if you'll stop preaching, we'll let you go. But for 12 years, John Bunyan sat in prison because he would not stop preaching. We'll see it in Jonathan Edwards, who amazingly is fired from his pulpit in Northampton. What would he do? He would become a missionary to the Mohawk Indians and would continue preaching the gospel. They could not stop preaching the gospel with hopes that people would be saved. Finally, the Puritans were a group of people who suffered. We've seen that, haven't we? These men suffered greatly. They were killed, imprisoned, stripped of their livelihoods and all sorts of things that we will see even more tomorrow. They suffered for the sake of Christ, but these were people who lived by Philippians 3.20. Their citizenship was in heaven, and from heaven they awaited King Jesus. And so they lived their lives for His glory. Folks, we've only scratched the surface of the Puritan movement. You might say we've been here forever, but we've only barely even begun to see about the Puritan movements. I hope you want to learn more about these men. You can pick up so many of their own works thanks to Puritan paperbacks. You can pick up Jeremiah Burroughs. You can pick up Samuel Rutherford, John Owen, as we have mentioned. All these men, you can dig in and you can learn from them. And these are men that we want to imitate. Now let me just quickly say this. These are not perfect men. Who is? There's been one perfect man, Christ. As you read the Puritans or study about them, you're going to find some fault in them. Of course... You can read about American Puritanism and you can read about the Salem witch trials. I'll leave that to you if you want. But you can also find some weaknesses in the Puritans is that they tended to be extremely legalistic. I mentioned to you earlier that they were Sabbatarians. And when I say they were Sabbatarians, they were Sabbatarians. They would be downright pharisaical at times. I mean, they would write rules for how to enjoy recreation. John Bunyan, in his book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, one of the great sins that he confesses in his autobiography is the sin of playing a game on the Sabbath day. Another Puritan writes of how he once hid behind a door and whittled on the Sabbath day. So great was his shame for that great sin of whittling on the Sabbath day. They had a tendency to be legalistic. But Rusty wouldn't want me to come here and tell you about all their negatives. So we're going to focus on the positives but I want to tell you that these men are not perfect men. And I recommend actually a book to you, Leland Ryken's book called Worldly Saints. What a wonderful book, Worldly Saints, about the Puritans that will talk about their strengths and their weaknesses. But this week we want to see what it is that we can learn from them. We want to see their pursuit of holiness. We will finish with this on Sunday as we talk about the pursuit of piety in our own lives. And we want to model this after them. 
These are the Puritans, and Lord willing, we will see more tomorrow. Let's pray.